Well, um, he wasn't sure what wasn't right with his life. I mean, he had it all, really. He had a job, he had a wife, a house, a dog. Yet, Benji Brundon still felt something was missing. But it was only after what could easily be described, I think, as living a country and western song. He found himself without a job. His wife filed for divorce. She even took the dog. Sadly, his father died not long afterwards, and it was then that Benji decided that his life needed a change, a major change, and he felt it should be about adventures, something he always loved and he wanted to chase this down. And it was a path to adventure that led him eventually to a motorcycle through a posty bike first, and then on to a WR250, and that led him into the desert, into some of the most difficult riding conditions for motorcyclists, sand. With a bike overloaded with fuel, water, gear, he literally learned to ride by falling, getting up, and trying again. And as he rode unskilled into the desert, he mounted his biggest challenge. And the incredible part is about this is that he made it. In fact, he not only made it, he loved the experience. Somehow under that hot sun, with the endless dunes and the sand, the Australian desert, forged Benji into a biker. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Sam It's wind pressure that powers the Moto Breeze chain oiler. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers the oil to a felt pad on your swing arm. No nozzles near your sprockets. One ounce of oil gets a thousand miles or sixteen hundred kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets. Motobreeze.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA. Comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Googletech filters. CyclePump.com. My name is Benji Brunden. I am from Melbourne, Australia, and I have a roofing business. Benji, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks, Jim. It's great to be here. A roofing business. We're not going to discuss roofing today at all, but um, that's got to be a pretty good business to be in, isn't it? A lot of hard work, I guess. Look, I'm actually grateful for the job because it is hard work and it keeps me pretty physically fit. So I think when people ask me if I, how do I train for the motorbike rides, I say I'm just, I still try to do two or three days at least on the tools and it keeps me pretty fit ah, right. naturally. Yeah, that's mm. true. That's, that's good carrying all those bundles of shingles. 
Do they still do that? Are you still carrying shingles up? No, I do a lot of uh, uh, tin and tiles as well, but it also, you know, look, it just pays for the adventures really. So (laughs) you can't have one without the other. You've just um, set a, a world's record through Guinness Book for being the fastest person to ride through 10 deserts in Australia. Now, we know other people have ridden through deserts, but you, you decided to put it all together into a chain. And to get to that point, I mean, really, that, that's sort of, um, that's down the road in your story because your story starts where? How, how far back are we going? Uh, well, I would say for this particular story, it started in 2015, when I was let go of my job with the Victorian Police Force. Um, and then from that, my life just kind of cut, um, spiraled from losing my job to my marriage breaking down to losing my home. And then my father died recently, after, shortly after that. And everything just seemed to come crashing down around me. So, so, so were they related? Uh, little- like, I mean, were there things that were tied together here? Your job and your wife leaving? I, mean, I know you sort of had everything. You, you, you felt you did. But I know you also mentioned that you weren't really totally satisfied with, with life at that point. You know, I'm talking before you lost your job and before your wife left, etc. That's right. So I guess the way you would look at it is I was just ticking all of those societal boxes. Um, you know, I had a house in the suburbs with a picket fence. I had a wife, I had a job, I had a mortgage, and I had a nice car and just living in the suburbs, keeping up with the Joneses. And yet something inside me, I was quite um, unhappy with that life and, and where it was leading me. So not feeling um, like I was living into my full potential in in. I guess the suburbs and society, when all of that sort of fell apart, I just thought to myself, well, you know what? I actually always wanted to live an adventurous life and I tried playing by the rules and it didn't work out for me. So I'm just going to do the things I want to do and live the life I've always wanted to live and just absolutely have a go at doing all the things I've actually always wanted to do. What kind of things were you doing before? So in your old life, so to speak? So in my old life, I actually spent some time in the Australian military as a, a reservist Navy diver. Um, prior to that, I was also a boxer as well, and I had some success as an amateur boxer. So I've always liked to keep fit and healthy, but you know, even things like going on a camping trip, you know, like I say about my my ex-wife, like we would never go camping together. I'd always want to be in the outdoors. I'd always want to be doing adventurous things. I was a massive fan of Bear Grylls growing up. Um, so I was always an outdoorsy, adventurous type of guy who just didn't have the right people around him to encourage those adventurous um, wants. You mentioned you lost your job late in 2015. Your wife left. Um, I understand she took the dog. She took the dog, yeah. <laughs> That's got to He hurt. was my adventure buddy. He was the only guy that would come on adventures with me and she took him. Oh. <laughs> Benji, I feel for you. I do. I love dogs. Yeah, yeah. Your, your dad passed away as well. I mean, as after this is all happening, what changed in you? What was the point where you all of a sudden decided, okay, this isn't working. I'm, I got to reinvent things. Yeah, so I think my dad um, passing away was just a real eye-opener. So he, he was the kind of guy that just talked about all the things he was going to do. And he was going to do this and he was going to do that. And, you know, we just heard it all before. So when he passed away suddenly of a heart attack, it was, I just, I sort of 
promised myself and vowed to myself that I would never live a life like he had. You know, like wasted opportunities, missed moments. So uh, I think after that, it really was a case of, well, I'm just going to, I was built at that, uh, at that time. I can't, so he had a funeral in Sweden because he was living in Sweden. I came back from Sweden and I said, you know, I'm going to build a camper van and travel the country. And within a week of that, the very first van I looked at, I bought, and it was an old courier's truck. And I spent a year basically rebuilding the inside of that, turning it into a uh, camper. I started living in that. And then while I was still waiting for the divorce to finalize, I decided I'd buy a small motorbike to sit on the back of the camper van so I could, you know, go up and do the grocery shopping. Now, I'd never ridden a motorbike in my life. And I, had, I knew nothing about motorbikes. So the first bike I bought was an Australia Post bike, which is like it's for the postal service. So there's, it's a little red 110cc Honda and it's got these massive saddlebags on the back to hold all the mail. It's a step through, like a scooter, but it's, it's kind of like re- a scooter. It's revered though for being like a super tough machine. People have ridden around the, yeah, ro- yes. around the world. They have. They're just indestructible. Yeah. Um, and they've got these massive bags on the back, which I thought would be great for groceries. <laughs> now, funnily enough, my little indestructible posty bike didn't pass its roadworthy. Uh, and it was, so there was a few problems there, which is, you know, to be expected. It was quite old. So someone mentioned to have a look on a platform called Bike Sales. So I had a look on Bike Sales and on the first page, six bikes down, there was this little Yamaha WR250R for sale. Now, I actually knew nothing about motorbikes and I thought that Yamaha made guitars. <laughs> I just do. thought this one. <laughs> uh, among they other do. things, yeah. I thought this one, yeah. I thought, well, this one looks pretty cool and it's got knobby tires on it. Great. So I went and had a look at the bike on the way home that morning and the guy who was selling it just said, oh, look, it was, you know, it's done this, it's done that. And it was looked immaculate. Like I knew nothing, but it looked really neat and clean. Um, And the guy said, look, it comes with this uh, bag full of gear. So he had a Yamaha racing bag, two shirts, pair of pants, Tech 7 boots, body armor, helmet, spare chain, and it all fit me like a glove. Jeez. So then I'm, so I'm, I'm sort of inner city Melbourne in the inner suburbs. I've got all this motocross gear on. And the guy says, well, why don't you take it for a spin and see what you'll think? And at that stage, I'd only ever ridden a postie bike. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, sure. So we'll, um, we'll see how this goes. So there I was riding up and down um, the streets in all this motocross gear, all the gear, no idea. It was the perfect example of that. Anyway, I came back to his house and I was like grinning from ear to ear because for me, this thing was like a rocket ship. And... Um, he said, oh, it also comes with this, this tow ball hitch and you can slot this into the back of your van. So I bought it there and then on the spot, I bought it for $3,300. And aside just getting it registered, there was no, nothing that needed to be done to get it on the road and it was, we were good to go. So I think at that point, after buying the van, kitting that out, and then all of a sudden just getting this motorbike, it was the first bike I looked at. I just thought that the universe is telling me that I need to go on this wild adventure. So within a month or two months of getting the bike, I had my van packed. The divorce was finalized. Everything was done. 
and I was still feeling pretty, you know, disconnected from society and, you know, like had a, had, um, had a monkey on my back and I just want, I thought, well, I'm just going to get in my van and start traveling and see where it takes me, see where the road takes me. And where did it take you? Well, I decided I'd do a big lap of Australia, which was, you know, in a clockwise direction, it was about 30,000 kilometers. Um, I don't know, it's about nearly just under 15,000 miles for your American listeners. And I thought I'd touch the compass points of the country as one of the goals of the trip. So I started in, in Melbourne in the southernmost point, a place called Wilson's Prom. And then I traveled across, I guess, the, the southern part, the southern coastline of, Western, of Australia, across South Australia. And I stopped at all these different spots along the way. And, and I basically, one of the first adventures I took, I went on, I took my bike out onto these, through these sandy tracks in this little town called Robe. And I'd never really, at that time I was by myself, I'd ridden motor, my motocross boots like twice or three times and I'd clean, cleaned my air filter twice. So I really was an, a complete novice on the bike. But I decided I wanted to try and ride on the beach. Someone told me riding on the beach was just um, exhilarating. So I spent the day riding this motorbike down these sandy tracks and just having an absolute hell of a time trying to keep it upright and keep it going in the sand. And I was pushing it up all these sand dunes. Um, But I eventually got out onto this hard-packed beach and it was just – it was. It was exhilarating to ride a motorbike on the beach. And I think after that day – I was just hooked because, you know, although it was hard, as a, you know, I, I soon, soon enough learned I had to just start going faster to get on top of the sand. And um, that was sort of like a baptism of fire into um, sand riding that day. But then we sort of, I got over to Perth and I took it up the West Coast, the West Australian coastline, which is one of the most remote coastlines in all of Australia. Well, it is, there's just really no population on the Western side of the country. So it was very, very isolated. And my next adventure was to take it out to the westernmost point of Australia, which is a place called Steep Point. And when you're talking about this, you're, talking, you're, you're driving in your van, bike on the back sort of thing. Yes, I was, I was driving in my van. The, the van had a fridge in it. It had an air conditioning unit. It was fully insulated. It, it was just a really, um, like I'd spent a year building this thing. There was a map of the roof on the ceiling. So it was very, very comfortable to live in. And I had an awning that came out, out of the side. And I originally built a kitchen that slid out. You open the back doors of the van and the kitchen slides out the back on these big drawers. Now, because I'm obviously, look, I'm a guy. I don't really do much cooking. So the kitchen turned into a workshop. <laughs> so <laughs> It shows your priority right would, there. <laughs> yeah. So I would have my, I'd be, I'd eventually be out in the middle of the bush with, you know, just, um, a few beers and, and some – the tent, the camp set up with the awnings out everywhere and I'd have my bike up on a stand um, with the, the, all the, the drawers sliding out across the back, all my helmet, my helmet and my body armor on hooks on the back doors and just all the spanners and spare tubes and everything hanging off the back. It was, it was pretty funny to, sit, to watch actually. Yeah, it sounds like a really nice setup. Uh, yeah, for, it was great. Bike. Was there any point when you're when you're just starting out riding here? Because there's there's so many lessons that you have to learn when you start to ride a bike. Is there any point when you were riding this bike where you thought, "Man, I'm kind of in over my head"? Uh, 
every day. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, every you're time. a determined kind of guy. You, you, you get that I sort am. of feedback from yourself and you think, I'm going to push it. I'm going to do it. Yeah. So look, I think my friends here in Melbourne and anyone who knows me well knows that I am the most stubborn, you know, uh, hard-headed guy they've, they've ever met. So, I mean, it served me well in business. I, I work really, really hard. You know, there was once upon a time when I was younger that I wanted to be a special forces soldier and it was all I ever wanted. And, you know, that was the, the, the motivation behind joining the Navy and wanting to be a clearance diver or, you know, or a Navy SEAL as, as you, would, you guys in the, in the States would talk about. So that was always my, and again, with the boxing and everything else, <clears throat> yeah, I've always been a very determined guy with, with a bit of grit, I guess you could call it. Um, so even that that first ride out into the um, the sandy tracks in South Australia, and certainly even the westernmost point, so that was um, a lot of sand. So there was a lot of pushing the motorbike up sand dunes and sand hills. And um, at one point, I remember on that that first beach ride, I I rode out onto this beach and it was just really soft, really deep sand. And eventually, just stopped. I had I was pushing it. I pushed it probably about five hundred meters. And I was just exhausted, you know, at that time. So I walked down to the beach and um, wet my face, had a drink of water and just sat there and looked the way I'd come, which was just deep sand as far as the eye could see. And what was in front of me was just deep sand as far as the eye can see. And I just, I absolutely laughed. I just laughed and I said, Benji, or I, you know, you know, I said, Benji, you're in this now. Or I, I refer to myself as Brundon when I have that self-talk, you know, I'm like, Brundon. You're That's your now, last mate. name. <laughs> That's my last name. Right. Yeah, you know. So it's like you're in it now. You may as well enjoy it. <laughs> Just keep going forward. There's no turning back. So I, you know, sure enough, kept going forward, and eventually it firmed up. And eventually I got to the next beach, and the next beach was just the sandy. And then I finally got to that third beach, and that third beach was the the firm packed sand. And that's that was the exhilaration. The the really, I must have ridden up and down that first that third beach. Uh, a dozen times, but after that, I made a, I made a promise to myself that I would never, I wouldn't, I just wouldn't turn back. I wouldn't give up, no matter what, during any of these crazy expeditions. Did you get your bike license? I did. Yeah. So I was literally, I got my bike license just before I left. So while all of this, these trips and adventures were going on, I was still on my learners. So you're um you're sort of sorting out this bike, getting a feel for it. When do you come up with the idea of riding the deserts? So I spent a a good year traveling around the country and and just basically taking the bike into all these these wild places, these national parks, and it was all sort of coastal areas. But it's, it's still, especially on the western and the northwestern corner of the state, there's um it's a lot of sand riding. So it wasn't. And obviously the deserts uh, are all central in the central part of Australia. So it was only after um, it was only after I'd spent probably nine months to a year traveling around the country, and I got back to Melbourne. Um, and you know it was just crazy. I'd, I'd been on this incredible adventure, this this wild journey for a year. And within a day of getting back to Melbourne, it was just I had builders calling me. I had people trying to lock me in for work, and it was like I'd never left. And I just went, I am not ready to be back yet. <laughs> so 
I decided I started looking into different adventures and I thought about crossing this so over in the eastern on the eastern seaboard or in the eastern interior there's the the Simpson Desert um, it's a really massive desert it's the largest parallel sand dune desert in the world has over 1100 sand dunes and um you know, I thought, well, I can cross that. So I did some research and then I saw that well, everyone's crossed the desert. There's, some people do it on these souped up bikes in a day. And you're looking for something that somebody else hasn't done. Yeah. So I thought, well, everyone's done that. And then I looked okay. at uh, in the western side of the country, interior, there's um, a track called the Canning Stock Route and it's the longest uh, stock route in the world. It's one of the most remote tracks, arguably the most remote track in Australia. Um, because you've, you've got to travel thousands of kilometers to get there before you even get there, before you even enter the track. So, and that crosses three deserts. And I thought, well, everyone's done that. Everyone's done that. And then I, I Googled a bit more and I realized, well, there's actually 10 deserts in Australia. Mm-hmm. So people just assume that the, the whole interior of Australia is one big desert, um, which it is. It's all desert region, but... So no one had really crossed the central deserts from east to west. And I thought, well, there's these 10 deserts. And I just started plotting a route. And I thought, well, if I start here and go there and, you know, then zigzag up and then head west and then go south and then north again and and kind of zigzag through the the whole interior, I'll be able to cross all 10 in one go. So then I started getting all my stage notes. And this is, again, so... After a year of doing all these expeditions, I sort of had it down to a fine art working out, you know, how much food I needed. I knew what my fuel burns were on my motorbike by then. I knew how much weight I could carry and how much water I'd, I'd need. I knew that if I had, you know, as an example, I, there was one trip I did, I had five cans of tuna and I walked, I was able to walk out um, over 40 kilometers on five cans of tuna. So I thought, well, if I have emergency rations, I can, if I have um, a couple of cans of tuna, some beans and some music bars, well, I'll be able to walk out a hundred kilometers, no problem. Why did you walk out to begin with, with those cans of tuna? That was, uh, so to get to the, um, that was on one adventure I went on to get to the southernmost point of the country. I, this is when I was, you know, still very green. I rode my motorbike down to this national park and when I got down there, the, the store and the local uh, the lo- local service station was, was closed and all I had on me was four cans of tuna. And I thought, well, I'm here now. I can't wait till the morning to get some more food and supplies, so I'll just go for it. And it was um, – yeah, so I, I hiked, I parked my bike and I hiked down to the southernmost uh, part of the coastline in, in Australia and all I had was the four cans of tuna. Oh, I see. So – I got back to my bike the next day and I was like, well, that's okay. I'm still alive. I've, I've got reserves, energy reserves in my body. Like I can, 40 Ks is fine. So if I had eight cans of tuna, I could probably do a hundred Ks. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> so this is your, this is your safety zone you're building. You're, you're thinking these cans of tuna, small, easy to carry. And if you have to walk out, so if anything goes wrong, you're, that's what you're thinking about. Exactly. So tuna and a couple of bags of nuts was sort of like my emergency rations. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so I, I, I guess over a year of traveling, like by the time I got to the deserts, I knew what kind of food I needed. I had, to, I, although in the deserts I changed my diet, I just had dehydrated meals. 
Um, but I had a, a spot tracker, a beacon. Um, I had my stage notes. So logistically, my stage notes were: I'll drive, I'll ride this many kilometers on this day. It's it's X amount of kilometers or miles to the next resupply point. I need to get fuel. I need to contact this Aboriginal community. They need to know I'm coming before I get there, etc., etc., etc. So the whole thing was incredibly. Um, there was a lot of meticulous planning that went into. I guess the logistics behind the scenes. I had people tre- checking on my location every day in Melbourne. I had a sat phone with me. So, <clears throat> yeah, and I had a solar power, a little solar panel to power all my devices while I was riding, as well as a 12 volt um, port on my 250. So there was a, there was a fair bit that went into it. Um, and look, when I when I applied to Guinness World Record to have the record recognised. So they, I wanted to be recognized as the first person to, to cross the 10 deserts um, and they just wanted um, to be recognized as the fastest. So then it would then open the door for other people to try and break the record. Uh, yeah, I've and, heard um, this. They've sort of changed the way they're doing records now that they're not interested in firsts anymore. That's right. So, I mean, look, if it's a first, it has to be pretty astronomical, like first person to walk on the moon or first person to cure cancer. Which makes sense in this whole day of getting everyone to to get in on things. If you you have a a record that's unbreakable, let's face it, you you can't be the first again. So, I mean, it makes sense. So, they get you to look at it a different way. So, so were you actually going fast though? Look, there was, so you had understood, so my motorbike at the same, I was going as fast as I could given the terrain and the, the conditions I was under. So the the bike itself, I had it rebuilt and I had custom-made suspension put front and back. So I was carrying nearly 130 to 140 kilos of gear on the bike during its heaviest at its, at its, at its most fully loaded point. So there's only so fast you can go with that kind of weight. Mm-hmm swinging off your bike. The the idea though for the fastest uh, circumnavigation, I guess, of all, all 10 deserts, is is that before you leave or is that when you come back? No, so it was interesting. So I'd applied to, that was before I left, I applied and to have it recognized and I sent Guinness World Records my stage notes and everything else. Now, because I got so busy in, you know, my own the planning of the trip, like it was just kind of an afterthought. So I'd actually already got halfway through the deserts like, you know, I was already um, 10 days in before I finally got some reception and got an email saying your your record attempt has been approved. So, I was, I was already halfway through. Right. I was like, oh, God. So, so you were and, doing um, this for yourself regardless. It didn't, it was. It didn't matter about the re- the, doing the record. That wasn't the, the goal, really. No. It really – so I, I literally must have sent half a dozen emails to Guinness over uh, the course of three months. And because, you know, it's a – they're a massive organization, so – the communication was stretched out. I'd send an email. I'd get a reply back two weeks later. Oh wow! Yeah. And do they charge you for that for for applying? Um, yes, they did. I, th- I can't remember what it was, but there's two different ways you can apply. You can either pay the I think let's uh, maybe fifty dollars or a hundred dollars to have the application done, um, or you can pay a thousand dollars and have it rushed through really quickly. Now, again, I wasn't the, the record wasn't the 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 end game here for me. It wasn't, you know, so I wasn't willing to pay a thousand dollars just to have the all the, the paperwork rushed through. So 
Um, I just I just applied for it through through the normal cha- channels, and it probably took three months or six months even. I guess no, it would have taken three months to get that record approved. But I think when I sent them, what happened is when I sent them my stage notes because I mean they get they they get record, um, they get people applying for records all the time. So when I sent them my stage notes, um, they saw that. Well, hang on, this guy's serious. Like this guy's the real deal. Because there was that much information, there was like ten pages of stage notes typed out on um, A4 paper. Mm. <clears throat> so I sent them to that as a PDF, and then they pretty much approved it. Like within, so I sent them that maybe a, a month or so, or a couple of weeks before I left, and I didn't get the the confirmation. Like I said, until I was ten days into it. So, you mentioned about having the the big bags on the bike. What sort of bike prep did you do? I mean, because you've got to worry about fuel and you got to worry about water. Those are your two huge things in the deserts. I know there's areas there where you're not going to find either. That's right. So, yeah, it was really challenging logistically. Um, so, for example, in the eastern deserts or the eastern block, I knew one of the biggest challenges would be water and the sand dunes and the 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 um, the amount of weight I had to carry across the sand dunes. In the central deserts, uh, the the biggest challenge, one of the biggest challenges was the, the simple isolation. There wasn't any wells or bores for nearly a thousand kilometers, which is 600 miles. Um, and in the, the Western deserts, they had their own set of challenges again. So one of the, one of the things I had to do was I had to get custom suspension put in front and back. I rebuilt the motor. Um, the team at On Point Moto, Stell and his guys down there did, did an amazing job for me. Uh, shout out to those guys. Um, but so for one of the longest, longest stretches of uh, between checkpoints was nearly a thousand kilometers. So to prepare for that, I carried 50 liters of fuel on board. So 14 liters in tanks and I had fuel bladders hanging off the front of my bike um, with 10 liters in each of those. So another 20 liters hanging off the front plus another 14 liter um, roto pack that was on the back. And the other issue with that desert is that it was so remote and it was so dry. There was no water. There was no wells or bores. So I had to carry 22 liters of water as well, which I was going to ration out over four days to get from checkpoint to checkpoint because no one had really gone through the central deserts. I, there was this great unknown about what was in front of me. I didn't know how deep the sand dunes would be or how long they would be or if it was going to be rocks and cliffs and ravines. I thought, um, I was just, I was, didn't know what I was getting in myself into. So I had to prepare for worst case scenario and just think, well, it might, it can take me four or five days to get across. And I just have to try and take my time. So really doing, you know, allowing a 200K a day under good conditions. That was a lot of uh, liters you were adding up there in fuel and water. Yeah. What, what kind of weight are we talking here when the bike's loaded up? So by the time the bike was loaded, I mean, even myself personally, I had water on my back, plus um, I carried a drone with me, plus uh, first aid kit on my hip, etc. So I was carrying, including my kit, over 25 kilos of gear on my body to keep the weight off the bike. Um, but I think when the bike was fully loaded with me on it, uh, I went over a weigh bridge. It weighed just shy of 350 kilos. 
350 kilos. So that's seven, that's 770 <laughs> plus pounds. Yeah. Wow. Giant Loop, makers of motorcycle luggage, go light, go far, go fast is their motto. They make solid, reliable, practical gear without all the extra buckles and straps that you don't need and just end up getting in the way. Giant Loop is careful to design their bags for the purpose they are meant for, travel, discovery, and exploration. Now, mark your calendar this year because each year, Giant Loop hosts what they call the Giant Loop Ride. It's an adventure motorcycle rally weekend in the high desert of eastern Oregon uh, from Crane Hot Springs. This year is going to be their 10th rally. So to give you an idea of how successful this rally has been, this year on their 10th rally, Harley-Davidson is coming to the Giant Loop ride. So in in fact, it's the only ride actually that that I know of that Harley is attending. Now you can find out more about Giant Loop products and the rally at giantloopmoto.com. Don't forget to throw in there anytime you're dealing with them that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. It's giantloopmoto.com. Well, you know, I've heard from many listeners about how they bought IMS foot pegs and absolutely love them. And that mirrors my experience as well. It's also um, one of the mods that I think you can do, at least in my mind, to improve your riding ability. And I mean, I think it's a fact, really, if you think about it. If you have a better connection to your motorcycle through your foot pegs, you're going to be able to control the bike better, hands down. That's all there is to it. And all of their foot pegs are made in the USA. They're made with CAS-certified stainless steel. They're all warrantied for life. But most importantly, I think, they're designed using 45, over 45 years of experience. IMS foot pegs for your bike literally change your ride for the better. And I'm certain you're going to agree with it uh, when you when you get the chance to, to try out the foot pegs and see what they do for um, controlling your motorcycle, for especially for adventure motorcycles. And, and by the way, I just noticed that IMS has completely redesigned their website. And wow, you should check it out. Um, so much easier to find the parts you're looking for, to have a look at the pegs that, that may fit your bike or that you may be interested in. Have a look at it. It's imsproducts.com. And anytime you're dealing with them, email otherwise, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio, imsproducts.com. Three hundred fifty kilos. So that's seven. That's seven hundred and seventy <laughs> plus pounds. Yeah. Wow. So if you take me off that. 350 take, I'll say I weigh 90 kilos, 80 kilos. Well, I weighed 90 kilos when I left. So 260 and the bike is 120. It's about 140 kilos a kit. What's the maximum payload, do you know, for the for the WR250R? Not 140 kilos, <laughs> I think. You know, it's funny. They it's, are, that's, a, that's a question that very few people can answer. What's the maximum payload of the vehicle? But it is kind of important. There's a lot of things that make a difference here. I can't imagine what it must have been like for you to get on that bike fully loaded that first day. <laughs> my, my The gear on my bike weighed more than my bike itself. <laughs> so then it becomes top heavy. You know, I mean, yeah. the, the bike is already top heavy. It's a tall bike, very tall bike, actually, mm. uh, and really that, nice yeah. bike. Um, but that is a lot of weight. And when you go down, if you did, that's a lot to pick up. It is a lot to pick up. But having said that, I had these. So the one thing I did salvage from the posty bike was the saddlebags on the the the, um, 
the postal service box. So I had these, I had a custom made, I took the whole rack off the back of the posty bike and I made this, I welded a custom rack onto the back of my WR that I could slip the, the, the saddlebags onto. Now that, that ended up being great. So when I did get, when I did come off or I did get bogged on a sand dune, I could literally just take all my bags off and they all just unstrapped and unclipped and I could walk all my gear up to, up to, up the sand dunes, um, I guess in three or four loads, it was easy to get it off the bike. And then when I got the bike to the top, I could strap it all back on and off we go again. So I had these massive Australia Post bags either side of my bike. They were huge. They came out the side of the bike like wings. Um, so they were uh, – and they were just fully loaded with, with tubes and tools and all sorts of stuff. But because they hung out so wide, I kept clipping trees and oh, right. or, um, bushes or – uh, ant mounds. So by the time I got out of the desert at the other end, I just bounced it off that many. I burst all the seams on the bo- on the bags. I'd had um, over a hundred cable ties holding these bags together, and it just became comical. Well, the, then the bags are huge. I'm looking at the photograph of it right now. That some of the photos that you sent us, and we'll put them in the show notes, by the way, so people can go to the show notes and oh, look fantastic. at them as well. But um, yeah, this is a this is a big setup. This is a a heavily loaded <laughs> bike. But but it, but it isn't like like to be fair to you, Benji. Even as a starter, it's not like you're overloaded for what most people do when they go on an adventure. They just take too much stuff. But you're really trying That's to right. meet those really hard requirements of that fuel and water, and you can't mess with that. Yeah. That's right. So, I mean, and again, so even that first year of travel really sort of, um, I, I, I kind of got, got rid of a lot of um, dead weight on that trip. I mean, look, even on this trip, the, the, the desert ride was, was wild, but I knew that space and storage was such an issue. And look, I did take a drone with me. The drone le- lived in my backpack. I mean, I, so there was a, a few luxury items there. Mm-hmm. But... Um, so I literally had one change of clothes and I just wore the same pants, the same jacket and really the same top for 30 days in the, in the sand. <laughs> I just didn't, didn't change. I, if I'd get to a, um, a resupply, I'd wash under a, a bore or a pump every couple of days and I'd just kind of wash the clothes that I was wearing and they would dry out as I was riding. Wow. And that's to save bulk and, and a little bit of weight, of course. Mm-hmm. And talcum powder is your friend. So every day I'd put talcum powder in my boots and talcum powder on my body. And that was like a bush shower. Mm, and also helps so a little bit with chafing. It does. And then people also ask me like, how did you sleep in that stink? And I said, well, you know what? My, my camping gear, my bedding smelt like talcum powder. So it was <laughs> kind of like crawling into a baby's bed every night. <laughs> Um, in probably more ways than one, the baby's yeah. bed comment, because it'll have that smell of the other things that isn't so fun yeah. with babies. Yeah, that's right. Because also the other, the, the interesting thing. So in the desert, there's the real issue with wild dogs and dingoes. So they'll come into your camp and steal all your gear in the middle of the night. So, and like, you know, it can be something as simple as they take a glove or a boot off into the bush. Now and it's then, gone. If you never got, see it again. It's gone. Wow. It's gone. So to, and I knew that that was going to be an issue. So I had to sleep with my boots in my tent every night. And it wasn't, it wasn't the best, wasn't the nicest smell, but you get that. 
wow. or everything else had to be hung up on top of my bike out of reach. Now, when you're go- when you're doing this route from one desert to the next through these ten deserts around Australia, you, you're not you don't have your van there as a backup. Are, are you loading it onto your van, taking it to the next desert, or is it strictly on the bike? No, it was strictly on the bike. So it was. <clears throat> I started in a small town. I got someone to ferry me up to as you know as far north to the edge of, I guess, you know, t- as far north as possible, which is about a thousand k's north of. Melbourne, and then from there I rode the motorbike another thousand k's to get to this to this small little town in the middle of South Australia, in the middle of the first desert, and then from there it was about um, just under seven thousand kilometers of dirt track and sand dunes to do on the bike alone. Wow, sounds great, but daunting as well, and at the same time, yeah. So all up. I mean, by the time, if you include the time taking to get to the deserts, although the trip itself took 30 days, I was probably living out of the bike for, for closer to 40. Right. So you, you have the bike prepped and you head off. Um, are, are you determined, like, now you, you sort of seem like that type from, from what you're, you're explaining <laughs> here. You're, you're determined to make it no matter, come hell or high water, as the saying goes. Is that what it's like? Or did you, or did you reach some points where you thought, I don't think I can do this? Oh, there, there really was. There was a few of those uh, moments. So I think physically it was it was really tough. It was definitely really physically demanding. But the emotional toll it took, uh, it was because a lot of the time you just walk, you're riding into the unknown. And I'll, t- I'll tell two stories here. So there was in that, um, for example, in that central desert region where water was an issue and the, the distance – and I think that was by far the most remote track. I saw less than I saw three cars in five days of travel. Mm. So, and each of those cars is um, you know a fifteen minute stop. Hi, hey, going? What, what's 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 going on? <laughs> so, forty five minutes of of human contact in in five days. You're you're not going to stumble um, across a vehicle that you haven't seen. You've seen no vehicles. You're not going to stumble onto a vehicle and let it pass by without making some sort of communication. Yeah, and there was actually this is an interesting little fact. So, thirteen days before I'd left or took off on my adventure, there was another adventure rider who had attempted to do something similar than than I had, and he'd gone down the same track thirteen days earlier. And he, believe it or not, he never made it. He ended up getting really sick and had to get um, airlifted out of the out of the desert. Mm, so, wow. but thirteen days earlier, he'd gone through, and his his tracks were still in the sand. That's how yeah. remote these deserts were so in that particular desert i had i had no human contact in a few days um i was i was riding across the sand now i crested a sand dune and i hit a tree and this is one of the the first this is one of the first real um big offs i had and it just kind of like sent my bike sideways and i just went skiddling down the track you know i i picked myself up i gathered myself and i just shook off the the adrenaline like jeez wow that was crazy. Looked over and I'd burst some of my water bladders. I thought, uh-oh, this is not good here. So then I fixed the repair. I kept going on. And then I I burst something else. Happened. Oh, that's right. Uh, a tree brushed my side and ripped the nipple off my, my camel back. And then the water just pumped out of my bladder. And then I lost another. Um, so by the end of that, by the middle of that day, I was like, I've lost... Uh, 80% of my water, I've only got about a litre of water left and 
I've got nearly 400 kilometers to, to travel to get to my next resupply and I don't know what's in front of me. So wow. it was so pretty- th- With that, what happens if you run out of water? What's your, your recourse, your sat phone and, and rescue? Yeah, so I wasn't, and the problem was, yeah, so I wasn't in, um, it wasn't, um, you know, we weren't at emergency stations yet. And I think, look, and the other issue was that I'd already woken up thirsty that day because I was dehydrated from the deep previous days. So I sat down and did a sit rep and I thought, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm okay. Fluid-wise in my body, I'm good. Um, I've got a litre of water here. I'm still riding. My bike's still going. I can still push forward because it was close for me to go forward. I, c- I couldn't go backwards. The next resupply was close. Does that make sense? Like, oh, I see. You passed the halfway point. Yeah, I passed halfway. And I knew what was behind me was just hell and, and just a real tough ride. So I didn't know what was in front of me, but I thought, well, I definitely can't go backwards now. So it's just forwards or nothing. Mm. And I thought, I've got a leader left. Um, I'm, I'm fit. I'm healthy. I'm strong. I've got good food. I've got good nutrition and my bike's still going. So, well, we'll keep going forward. <clears throat> now, at that point, I thought it was smart to start bottling my urine. So I started collecting that and I thought, well, worst case is I'll – so what I actually did is I, I made a cocktail where I put – I bottled my urine. I watered it down with some uh, – I diluted it with some water. I added some hydrolite and some Barocca um, and I just drank the whole lot down. It was just like this warm, salty Barocca. Um, but that would keep me going. So you, you've come up with a method of drinking your urine. And is that something you researched ahead of time? Did you plan for that? Uh, no. Well, I thought it would – you know, if I if, if that situation ever did arise, I'd, ha- I'd drink my urine. That's fine. Um, I have no problems doing that. But I, th- I never thought of – I was just lucky I had Hydrolot and Barocca with me to, <laughs> to make a bit of a concoction to make it taste better. <laughs> wow. That's so a- then, yeah. But then so it was actually even – so that day, so I've, I've, hit, I've hit a tree. I've lost my water. Things are going from bad to worse. I've bottled my urine and this is all great. Then I um, I stopped to fix another issue on the bike and this sandstorm just came blowing in out of nowhere. What's that like? What does the sandstorm look like? Well, the, the, the desert I was in, it was like low scrub and bush, but the sand, it was quite a, um, a rutted sandy track. So it just started blowing me all over the track and I stopped to fix a, another leak and I looked and so this is after three days in this particular desert. And remember I told you how there was um, – that other rider's tracks in the, in the sand. Yeah. So I'd become quite attached to these tracks. So I was just following them. You know, when he cut the corner, I cut the corner. When he went up on the ridge, I went up on the ridge. And I was just following this guy's tracks going, oh, his, his, his name was Slip. I said, well, here's Slip's tracks. Slip's been here. This is great. <laughs> but when the sandstorm came through, it blew the tracks clean. And so I stopped to fix a leak and then his tracks got blown clean and then my tracks behind me got blown clean. And I just looked around and I thought, I'm in the shit here. Like I'm in the middle of nowhere. I'm literally a thousand kilometers from the closest airfield, let alone a town. And no one knows where I am. The sand, the wind is howling and there is the tracks. Clean. I am alone. And I suddenly just felt incredibly vulnerable and afraid. And um, it was just like in that moment, I was like, mate, get on your bike. Don't think about it. Just get get going. And uh, so that day I was averaging about 
at that time I was averaging 200k a day. Remember, I allowed four days to get through that desert, and I rode like a demon that day. And I made up 400k's to get to the next resupply, and I got to the next resupply at like uh, just as, as the sun had set. So after dark, um, to this little. It was a little shack in the middle of nowhere. It's, the, it's basically regarded as the most remote roadhouse in the country. It's on a dirt track in the middle of nowhere and it services an Aboriginal community. Mm-hmm. So all of their supplies and a guy gets flown in from South Australia and he does six-week stints there. It's almost like um, an outpost, if that, if that could, if you can imagine an outpost in, yeah. the, in the Arctic Circle or something like that. Um so this, it's as remote as it gets. So my little motorbike comes running, riding out of the sand dunes after dark and I had no headlight. The headlight's like a candle. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this guy must have heard my bikes tearing over the dunes because there's no sound out there. And I rolled into this little um, shack and he comes out with a torch and he looks at me and he just has this look on his face. And the look on my face must have been priceless because I'm covered in dust and dirt and I've been drinking my own piss and I'm just exhausted. And he just looked at me and he goes, mate, what are you doing out here? Like, where have you come from? And I was just like, mate, I'm exhausted. Can I just please roll my swag out here on your on your balcony? I, I can't be bothered making my, my setting my camp up. And he just said, mate, come inside, have something to eat and just sleep in the spare bed. You'll be fine, mate. You're all right now. Just, just come in. You're okay, mate. I've got. I'll take care of you for a minute. <laughs> wow. So I just. I'll never forget the look on his face. It was just priceless. That track that you're following, you mentioned about seeing the other guys' tracks slip, um, and uh, and following those tracks along. What's the trail like? Is there nothing? Is it? Is it just a sort of a? Uh, you're making your way through the desert randomly, following what a GPS. So I did. I was following a GPS, but so the track. It's a very remote, it's just basically two wheel ruts in the sand mm. and that's it. And there's, it's, it's not maintained. It's not maintained so it was all overgrown and so the trees are crowding the bush. So a lot of, if you have a bigger four-wheel drive from, you know, if you talk to other guys in four-wheel drives and trucks, most four-wheel drives don't go down that track because it's, A, it's it's so long and remote and it's so tight. Um and in, in some spots, it actually turned out to be quite rocky as well. But it was just, yeah, it was, it's just basically two two wheel ruts in the sand between between the trees, just weaving through the trees. And that's it. It's kind of funny that you you do this because as a new rider, you know, you're going out and riding sand. Sand is the type of thing that most riders will say, I hate sand. I don't, I don't want to go anywhere near it. And you take this on as your first challenge. Uh, that's, yeah. that's, that's an interesting approach to learning how to ride. Yeah, look, I mean, I guess if you don't know any different, you don't know any different. Oh, that's so. a very good point, yes. <laughs> but, but, so what's that like for you, riding the, riding the sand? You know, I mean, have you have you got it down pat by the time you reach this roadhouse in the middle of nowhere? Do you feel really comfortable on the bike or are you still sort of fighting the, the bike? No. By then I was feeling pretty comfortable on the bike. Um, but it's, 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 it's interesting because so now I've, I've gone on quite a few adventure rides since I've been back on an unloaded bike and I've got to learn how to ride an unloaded bike. Mm, yeah. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, yeah. No, it's like using the back end to, to turn the bike on a yeah. dirt bike. Like that's that's um, an unknown concept for me. Going down a skatey dirt road 
is kind of like challenging because yeah. I'm used to just pushing the wheel into the berm of the of the sandy of the sandy rut to to corner. Um, you know, I can ride a a fully overloaded, underpowered bike across the sand dunes, but I can't ride an empty one. If, you know, yeah. like I'm learning all over again how to ride a bike. Yeah, everything handles different, and uh, yeah, it's a completely different animal for sure. Uh, I, I can definitely see that. And especially if you get very used to it. I mean, this ride, you said took you 30 days, you're probably 40 days or 45 days uh, living off the bike. You get very used to how it feels at that point. And, and I guess it varies some because you are using some of your fuel and your water and then filling back That's up right. again, but you still got a load. So yeah, look, even uh, when the bike was fully loaded, it was certainly handling like a whale. But I mean, by the time I've got my fuel in tanks and I'm, so I'm, I'm down 20 liters of fuel and my water's getting low, then I'm thinking this bike feels so light, it's so nimble, I'm just bouncing across the sands. And really the reality is I've still got close to 100 kilos of gear hanging off it. Yeah. So you do, you just get used to what you've got and how it handles. That was your first desert of 10. Which one was the hardest? What was the most difficult for you? I think that particular, um, they all had their own different, they were all hard, and all challenging for different reasons. So that one that we just spoke about, the the solitude in that one w- was quite confronting at times. Th- one of the first deserts I went into, so I wasn't used to the, um, the incredible load I was carrying, was the Simpson Desert in the Eastern Block, um, and that's over 1,100 parallel sand dunes. Now, it took me three days to cross that because on the second day I had a, an electrical fault on the bike. And I spent probably half the afternoon just looking for uh, trying to get the bike going again. So I probably could have done it in two. But for three days, it was just riding. You get to the top of a sand dune and you can just look out over an ocean of sand dunes as far as the eye can see. And then you ride down to the clay pan, ride through it, get up on top again, and you just see an ocean of sand dunes again. And it was like that for three days. (laughs) Now, did you run that the, the traditional way, that direction that people run it? Because I know that running it in the opposite way, it's very, very difficult or almost impossible. Yes. So there is. So if you do it from west to east, that's the way the prevailing winds blow. The dunes are quite, um, I guess, they've got a, a low gradient and then a steep um, exit, mm-hmm. low entry, steep exit, and soft on the other side. And obviously me, because I want the challenge, I didn't want anyone to – to say I didn't do it right, I did it the hard way, almost <laughs> impossible. <laughs> oh, wow. So well, you just went, because I was... You went the opposite route. So you've got the steep, soft <laughs> climbs and the easy downs. And the easy down, yeah. All and right. obviously, look, because I was coming from Melbourne and it just happened to be that way, I had to go east to west. Um, so it was almost like on the, on day one, the, the, the second June, I, 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 I went up, I got bogged halfway and I just had to unload the bike walk all my gear up, get the, and I just thought this is going to be a long day. It's going to be a very long day. Um, so yeah, but got through it. <laughs> That's a lot of work. Uh, I mean, you know, obviously carrying your stuff up, but I mean, that can sap you pretty quick out of energy. Well, it was, yeah. So the energy was a real issue because what actually happened, I mean, so I went out into that desert and I camped at the base, basically at the very beginning of the, I camped at the base of the first sand dune that night. And I was just amped up. You know, I was ready to go. I was like, right, this is it. We've prepared for this. We're going for it. 
And then that next morning, I got up, made a cup of tea, watched the sunrise at the top of the next sand dune. It was beautiful. The desert is just a magical place. Um, it is just absolutely stunning. And out in there, you, you can hear these dingoes howling, different family groups of dingoes howling to each other across different sand dunes. You know, it's crazy. But that first day, I was so hyper-focused on getting the job done. Like, yes, I'm unloading my bike. I'm pushing it up. I'm going up. I'm, I'm getting around. There was a there's a, there's a creek that runs through the desert, which nine um, or 10 months of the year is bone dry. And I just happened to go through when it was flooded and you couldn't pass. So there was like an 80 or 90 kilometer detour around this creek, which I had to do around th- through the desert. So I put another, um, you know, another 80 kilometers on the, on the trip. But because I was so hyper-focused, I actually just forgot to eat food that whole first day. So by the time I realized I haven't eaten today, I, um, I had a meal late that night and I was just, I was exhausted at the end of the first day. But then the next day I was really, really tired because I was, um, I was in a, um, you know, energy deficit because I hadn't, um, fueled my body. Yeah. So it was a really important lesson to learn and I'm glad I learned it early and even like little things. So you're on nature's time out there. You know, you're on the nature's you're on nature's clock. So when the sun was rising, I'd wake just before the like, as the light started to come into the sky, and you, you just get right it's so in tune with nature. So when there was no shadows on the track, that's when I knew it was time to stop and eat. You know, so when there was oh, the okay. shadows were directly under, the, so when the sun was directly above, and I could just because you know what it's like when you ride a motorbike, you're so in tune with nature, and you you feel the dips and the temperature drops in the in the in the road and the forest and you, you, all the smells that come through. Yeah. So when the sun was would rise, I'd wake. When the sun was – when there was no shadow on the track, I'd eat. And when I was riding into the west and the sun was three fingers from the horizon, I'd stop and make camp. And that was sort of my my, my clock. Wow, that's really neat. That, uh, the way you're describing it sounds great. Hey, hey, this creek you had to go around, so it doesn't have water most of the year. It's got water when you come up. How, what, what kind of a creek are we talking about here? Why would you have to go so far to go around it? You couldn't ride through it? No, it was just, so that particular, so where the, the I guess the track crossed was, was so deep. So I had to go 40 k's north of that position to a different um, crossing where the creek was quite wide and it was probably 20 or 30 meters wide, but shallow at the same time. And did you know this? Like, is there some sort of marker or something that tells you? I did. I did. So prior to entering that desert, I went to the ranger station and got all as much um, intel as I could from, from the locals and people who'd crossed. And they, so I knew that there was going to be that diversion. So I carried the extra fuel for that particular stretch um, and so forth. So I did know, um, yeah, I did. It it was something I planned for. Mm. You did end up crossing a creek that, that was full of crocs at one point, like yeah. 200 meters wide or something like it. 200 meters. That's a long distance. Yeah, it just so dawned on me now when I'm thinking of this 200 <laughs> meters, that's a long distance to go with crocs. I mean, because I think it's a, it's a yeah. challenge making water crossings anyway. You know, most people will will find that a challenge, if, especially if you can't see the bottom. But crocs, that's just... Uh, I don't know. That's just adding a, well, a, a dynamic there that I'm not, I'm not too keen on. So that's another funny story. So that was during that first year of travel. So I'd I'd gone over to Perth. I went up the West Australian coast and I got into this area called the Kimberley and it's wild. And it's just, it's just sort of starting, you're starting to get into crocodile country there. 
Now, and I happened, I, my cousin from the Philippines, he, he'd come with me for two, he was spent two weeks with me traveling through that part of the country and I dropped later, drop him off in Darwin. So he was the, the guy who had the, the 600 zoom lens and was the photographer and he took all these amazing photos of that part of our journey. Mm. Now, so I got, we were staying at this, um, this, I guess, this, this hotel or this, this lodge or it's a station. It's actually a station. It's a cattle station in the Kimberley. And there's this, this massive river called the Pentecost River. Now, it's, it's an iconic river. It's the start of the Gibb River Road. Um, anyone who's in a, in a full driver, they say you need, you need to cross the Pentecost River on the Gibb River Road. Now, at that stage, you know, I'm still quite new to riding. I'm getting the hang of sand riding <clears throat> and I'd never done a river crossing. So... I, while we're there, we spent two days at this station. I Googled on YouTube how to cross a river on a motorbike. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, so around the station, there was all these smaller creeks, um, which I practiced on, just practiced crossing these rivers. And, uh, and like, this is a beautiful part of the Australian country. It's one of the most, it's one of the wildest, most remote areas. It's where this these natural oases just come out of the desert. You're in, you know, you're in rock country. It's, it's barren, it's dry, it's so harsh. And then all of a sudden you've got this beautiful river system um, coming out of these gorges and there's just huge cliffs and waterfalls in the middle of the desert. So that's the sort of country we're in. So as we're leaving this station, I, I drove my van 30, 30 odd kilometers down to this river crossing. And it was, it was just, really wide. Now, again, I didn't know at the time, but it was in full flood. So normally oh, no. when when the river is down, it's kind of got an island in the middle. So you can kind of like cross a little bit and then there's like a dry island in, in the middle and then you kind of cross the other the other end uh, to get across the other side. But it was in full flood. So even in the middle, the, the water was up around my forks. Um, and at that point, because I was just heading north into the top end, I didn't have a very healthy respect for crocodiles. I hadn't learnt that yet. Mm-hmm. So my um, my cousin set up his cameras, and I just thought I'll have a go at this. And um, yeah, just hit hit the water in second gear, and the bike just literally turns into a submarine halfway across, and it's just gurgling and gurgling and gurgling, and it sort of comes into the shallow bit in the middle. And I'm like, yes, this is going all right, and the whole thing is bouncing around like, and just flicking from. So- I have no idea how I stayed on, but um, got to the other side, and then I had to cross back the other way and go all the way back. And my cousin says to me, "Oh, Ben, you're going to need to do it again." I said, "What do you mean?" He said, oh, "I didn't get the shot." I said, you've got to be kidding me. And I was, oh, man. So, so I tried it again. And I, on the second attempt, I, I dropped the bike in the water. And again, I picked it up like a man possessed and raced, ran back to the shallows and said, mate, there are crocs out there. I know there is. Because that's right. When we got there, when we were setting up, we saw a crocodile just sitting in the water. And he just, as we rolled up, he just sunk his head and disappeared. And I was like, oh, that was a freshwater crocodile. And he, how do you know it was a freshwater crocodile? I said, oh, this, the, na- the nose was a lot narrower. It was definitely a freshwater crocodile. And they're, they're friendly or they're not dangerous. Yeah, okay, okay, yeah. You sound convincing. <laughs> <laughs> so I ended up crossing it, I think, um, 
three or four times and got these amazing photos and the amazing shots that he wanted. And, and again, they're all on my website and everything, but. Wow. It's great that you dropped it. That makes great photography. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure he'd love that. He's going, yes, that's just what I wanted. You don't want the shot of you making it through. You want the shot of you, that panic look on your face (laughs) when you're trying to pick the bike up knowing there's Crocs there. (laughs) The one that he got was of um, me coming back towards him in the deep water and the water's just coming straight over the handlebars. Like I'm just covered in it. And I'm just on the pegs trying not to paddle my feet because I know my feet turn to rudders if you're in the deep water like that. So just on the pegs the whole way, just just holding on for dear life. Is that where you got most of your, your training from is YouTube? Yeah, it really was. So one of the bigger trips I did out to the Western Point when I had to, I knew I had to travel nearly 200 kilometers to get to the westernmost point of the country that was all sand country. So the night before, and it was just, it was like purely weird, uncanny that, so I was in the middle of nowhere, sleeping in the back of my van, about, so getting ready for the next day to go out to this, uh, the westernmost point. This is when I'm still pretty fresh on a motorbike. For one of the very first, certainly the longest expedition I'd done at that point in time. And I was in the middle of nowhere and I had perfect phone reception. I was like, mm, this is interesting. So, yeah. So I was able, I spent all night. So the night before I did that trip, I couldn't sleep. I tossed and turned and it was just YouTube dirt bike riding tips and tricks. <laughs> so, so, so a funny thing was on that particular trip, one of the tips they told me was to squeeze your knees, squeeze the tank with your knees, you know, um, and hold on with that and try and keep your, your, top, your torso loose. So I took that, advice and I followed it to the to the line so when I got out 160 k's the inside of my knees had rubbed raw from squeezing the tank so hard <laughs> you know and I was just the whole time I was just that nervous I was just like I was that stiff and nervous that it was just rubbing in the inside of my my quads there so it might be well worth your while, Benji, to, to take a course now, to, to sign up with an off-road course with somebody. I mean, because there's no doubt oh, look, I think, you, you've developed bad, some bad habits, guaranteed, yeah. and they're going to have to break you of those, you know, to, to no, teach a proper you, technique. You are actually right. You're 100% right. And I've actually, so I've already um, booked in with a friend of mine who's, well, he's, he's now, I would call him a friend now, but I've met him because I, he runs um, a course. I'm like, well, look, I really want to learn how to ride better enduro and just better like on a light unweighted bike i know i know there are some bad habits i've developed mm-hmm. um because i've just been riding by myself in the wild places so well, yeah. and, and you mentioned i think you said baptism under fire that's certainly it and that's not a way to learn you know finesse in techniques that's survival that's survival that's right yeah, so all of the trips I've done, they really were a baptism of fire. So, You mentioned uh, wild animals a couple of times. You made reference to them. What sort of wildlife <clears throat> did you see? Uh, so, again, during that first trip around, I spent four months in this place called Kakadu, which is right up in the, in the top end of um, the Northern Territory. And it is by far the wildest, most untamed part of this country. Like, I... I you cannot fathom the wild animals that live in that place. It is just an abundance of wildlife. So, um, <clears throat> and because I made friends with the traditional owners, they invited me to, to ride on out on their, um, their private lands. 
And so the, the park itself covers an area of over 20,000 square kilometers and probably tourists and, you know, um, I guess white people really only get to see maybe 10% of the park, like a couple of waterfalls and some rivers and that's about it. Whereas, and so Kakadu, I'll explain it to you quickly. Uh, so it's a big 20,000 square kilometers and there's this huge escarpment wall that runs east to, um, sorry, north to south, 500 kilometers. And it's a giant stone sheer cliff. And off that um, plateau runs all these like hundreds of waterfalls. So at the top of that um, escarpment wall, there's this area called the Stone Country. And it's a very coarse, stony plateau as far as the eye can see. And then at the base of that, um, huge escarpment wall, which in some places is 200 meters high, and there's these huge waterfalls that cascade off it um, in the shadow of the sun because the sun rises east to west, sets in the west. So in the shadow of the wall, you've got these dense tropical monsoonal rainforests um, in amongst all these cliffs and the rock art and the Aboriginal um, people have been living there for 65,000 years. It's still the oldest practicing culture in the world. And then once you get sort of out into the floodplains of Kakadu, because obviously they've got a really a wet season and a dry season, the floodplains just stretch endlessly for for miles to the horizon forever. So, and the floodplains in the dry season are just <clears throat> scattered with um with billabongs and um, small river systems everywhere, and all of those billabongs are literally teeming with crocodiles. What's a billabong? And wildlife. A billabong is just a body of water. So so we would call it a pond. I guess so, a pond, yeah. yeah. So, But in the wet season, these waterfalls just like cascade over the, the escarpment wall and the, the whole, the floodplains are just a giant, well, that's exactly that. They're just completely flooded. So everything is underwater for six months of the year. And then as the dry, the wet season finishes and, and the dry season <clears throat> Um, comes in, all that water just recedes, sinks into the groundwater. So the floodplains just become these big uh, lagoons, lagoons of water that are just full of crocodiles because the crocodiles get stuck in the water, in these water holes, until the next um, wet season comes and then they start moving around the park again. Mm. So it's an actual interesting fact. So the smaller the lagoon or the body of water, the more dangerous it is. So even if you get, have a, um, you come across a pond that is maybe, you know, just a small hollow pond in the ground, only five meters wide by five meters wide. That's the one you don't go anywhere near because the crocodile will just hibernate in that until the wet season comes again. And when you lean over to get a drink. You don't get a drink from that pond, mate. You just don't. (laughs) (laughs) What happens? Like, you know, what what would happen if you went over? Like, I mean, I've seen it before, but I mean, the croc sort of lunges out at you. Yeah, so they they do. They um, it's they are the most dangerous. Like I've got a real re- healthy respect for them. They are the most dangerous. They are literally dinosaurs. They are prehistoric. They are, and they have no like people get taken by crocodiles in the top end every year. Like it's a real thing that happens. Like mm-hmm. maybe similar to I don't know. Do people get eaten by bears and. Yeah, um, yeah. mountain lions in, in the States. Yeah, good, so crocodiles and, and bears, yeah. Mm. Um, so the top end, there's crocodiles everywhere and because of the floodplains, these these birds migrate 
every year. So the, the sky is filled with thousands of, of um, birds that, that um, live around all the wetlands. Um, so at night sometimes I'd ride my bike out onto these floodplains and I found some, some really nice spots to watch the sunset and you could sort of ride out and find a, a bit of a rise on the floodplains and sometimes you'd watch this the sunset and this is the most dangerous time to be out because this is when all the wildlife comes out to play. But the birds coming back to nest at night would just fill the sky and it'd be like they'd be casting a shadow over the setting sun. It was just incredible, you know, and I'd be out there on these floodplains by myself uh, on my motorbike and then I'd have to ride home before I lost the light and then there's buffalo and wild horses and pigs um, in the park as well. There are... There are just snakes that hang out of the trees. I mean, look, another example that happened. So one day I was riding my bike and I came around the corner. There was a snake in the middle of the track and it kind of like kicked its head back. And I just put my boot out and I kicked it in the head. And I was like, geez, that was close. So after that, I thought, wow, if I'm going to keep going out into these crazy wild places, then what if I get bitten by a snake? That could potentially happen. So I made sure I knew how to dress a snake bite wound, but then I also put a brand new permanent marker texter in the top of my first aid kit. So my plan was that if I ever did get bitten by a snake out there, well, the first thing I'd do was flick my beacon, uh, dress the wound, and then basically write a note on my arm, time a bite, type of snake, or you know, and whatever I wanted to write on my arm. So that way, beacon's flicked wound is dressed, if I passed out or became unconscious and someone found me, they would know exactly what happened to me, what time and where and when. Right. So that was my plan, my snake bite plan. Now, it's a terrible plan, but I thought, well, at least I've got a plan. So it's better to have a plan. The only thing, getting, the only thing worse than getting bitten by a snake in the middle of nowhere is to get bitten by a snake and not have a plan. So that's true. But the thing is, it's some of these remote spots you're in. How long is it going to take someone to get in there? You know, if like, Bob, I guess you set off your, your SOS, they're going to know where you are, but how long is it going to take to get somebody in to look at you? Yeah. So look, up in Kakadu was a bit different because, um, I was never more than a hundred or 200 kilometers from, I guess the resort I was working at, mm-hmm. or I always was able to tell someone I, where I was or what direction I was, I was going to travel. Right. But in the deserts, in the deserts, that was really remote. So one of the other issues that I sort of had to look at when I was going through the deserts is that there was only basically either the remoteness of the track and the terrain and everything else that would need for recovery, but also it's fixed wing rescue only. So the distances between airfields and towns and refuel was so vast that you just couldn't get a helicopter into these areas. Oh, I see. Right. So if, when I say fixed wing rescue, so if you, let's say, for example, I came off the bike and had an accident, well, then I'll send my beacon up. The only thing that can come get me is a four-wheel drive. So it might be a day before the four-wheel drive gets there. Then they pick you up and you're in a lot of pain and then they've got to drive you to the closest airfield and that can be hundreds of kilometres away, if not thousands. And then you get to a remote airfield because obviously, I'm, I've also decided to, to plot this course through a desert that not many people have gone through. So the only airfields are maybe in an Aboriginal community or, you know, a couple hundred other kilometres away at a station. 
So by the time you, you get rescued by a four-wheel drive, then you'll get to an airfield and then the Royal Flying Doctors have to send a plane because that's the only way they can rescue. So basically in the desert, it was like, well, if you get bitten by a snake out there, mate, it's it's you, your chances of um, survival and recovery are very slim. Yeah, so no, Not so good, yeah. That's what I was thinking, the, the difficulty of somebody coming in to get you and, and get you. The, the Royal Flying Doctors, they don't, um, they, there's no way to land in the desert with a plane? No, no, you just can't. Uh, too so much brush. If Too much brush, um, the sand dunes, you know, a lot of low-lying scrub and trees. It's And look, even though you think the desert is, is vast and flat, it's very undulating. There's a lot of ravines and tree roots and, um, you know, rocks and just uh, I see. All, all sorts of stuff out there. To, to Hazards for, <laughs> for a plane, for Hazards, any sort of landing exactly. Hmm. But just um, even like that, that time in Kakadu, that four months I spent in Kakadu where I got to really explore the the the, the, the floodplains and, and spend that time with the wildlife, um, that was when I really knew after there were so many crazy things that happened in Kakadu, I knew that um, I could do. I, could, I just knew after that trip that I could do anything. Like I could, I could get to the to the northernmost point of the Australia, which is Cape York, and then I knew I once I'd done that, I could do the the easternmost point. I could do the deserts because it was real. The time in country in Kakadu with the Indigenous Australians <clears throat> was really magic. I mean, there were times when I'd find. I found like this herd of like 50 wild horses and I would park my bike and just go and sit with these horses at night or I'd ride my bike during the day and I'd come across small groups of horses and I'd just ride my bike and they'd be galloping across the floodplain and I'd just be right there next to them riding my bike. No tracks, no no other roads. It's pretty dangerous at times. Um, or like I started, I kind of got this little obsession with buffalo. like. Everyone said to me when I was in Kakadu, like, you were absolutely mad riding your bike out onto the floodplains, mate. They are literally teeming with buffalo. There's hundreds of them out there. But I kind of, at this, at one point, I kind of got this um, thing where I just really wanted to see a buffalo. Um, and I started looking for them on the floodplains. And I learned that if I was riding a little bit too fast, they would hear my bike coming and they'd run off into the bush. And I'd sometimes come around a corner or whatever and there'd be a cloud of dust and you could just smell them. So you knew they were there. So I kind of started putting through the bush really, really slow and looking kind of through the bush to find um, moving objects because you can sort of be, buffalo was so huge, they can be right in front of you, but completely invisible. So this one day, the first time I remember I, I got to sort of spend some time with some buffalo, I kind of, got really in tune with the land and I, I was putting through the bush and I could see their tracks in the ground. I had the feeling, I just parked my bike. Again, I had a, a plan, so I always parked with my bike on the right-hand side and a tree or a small shrub or something on my left. So if a buffalo just came out of the bush, charging out of the bush, because they're quite dangerous, I could climb up into the tree and that was always my exit. I always had an exit plan in place. So... I parked this bike, I've crouched in the grass, my adrenaline is absolutely pumping through my veins, it's dusk, the birds are up in the sky, we're in the floodplains of Kakadu, we're in the wetlands, it's just a crazy, crazy time and I stalked through the bush and I came across to the edge of this big lagoon 
and there was just this family group of about nine to 12 buffalo, a uh, couple of calves, females, and these big bulls. And they're just sitting in the, in the shallows of this lagoon. And I just sort of sat under this tree while the sun was setting and just watched this family of buffalo just go about their business, you know. And it was one of the most magical moments of the whole trip. Wow. You know, of, of everything I've ever I've, I've seen and done, it was just absolutely breathtaking. I mean, you're just out on the land with these wild animals in their habitat and you were just part of the land with them. It was just absolutely breathtaking. It sounds amazing. It just sounds like you've just had some incredible adventures. And what a change from back in, in 2015, the end of 2015, when you when you lost your job. What's changed with you since then? And I know there's probably been lots, but in particular with the things you've done with the motorcycle, how has that changed you? It's a great question. Um, <clears throat> look, it really has just shown me that, you know, anything is really possible. Like I really can... Um, put my mind to anything now you know and that sort of came through again when I came back and said right I just want to write a book and I said well let's just plan to write this book the same way we we put our um, the same way we approach these expeditions and this these adventures um, just put the same same system in place what do you need to do what's your goal how do we achieve it what do we need who do I call um, and I really just have it's just kind of really taken any of those limiting those limiting beliefs, or I guess, you know, things are too hard or I can't do that or only certain people could, you know, anyone who's ever done anything crazy in their life is just another, it's just a, just a person. So any kind of thing, um, I, if I really want to have a go at something or do something and I really believe that I, all I have to do is, is, you know, float the idea, put it out there and, you know, plan for it, set some goals towards it. So, it really has, it's changed my outlook on life. Like now I'm 37, I feel like I'm reliving my 20s again because, you know, I'm a single guy. I'm, I've got, instead of spending time at the pub or, you know, just filling my body full of poison, I'm out there doing some, going on some pretty wild adventures now. Well, it does. Uh, it does seem amazing. Now, you've written this book. It's called Hunting Fear. How can someone? Uh, where is the book sold, or is it out yet? Yeah. So the book is Hunting Fear, and it basically talks about all of these adventures that we've we've spoken about, and and heaps heaps of others. And it is available on Amazon in the US, and pretty much any other country in the world. And but it is also available on my website. You can look at my website now. Look, if you bought it off my website and you're in the states, it's hard to get it to the states, but um, yeah, so it's available on Amazon. Yeah, postage is so expensive now. And but, it's uh, also available as an audio book as well. So I did the, I narrated the audio book during lockdown last wow. year here in Melbourne. Oh, yeah. Good for you. That's great. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> it's right. a bit of a laugh. So, so audio and, and printed book available through Amazon. We'll, we'll put, um, send me a photograph of the cover of the book because I haven't seen the book. I will. And, and we'll put that in the show notes as well so people can see it if they go to our website. And we'll also put the link to your website in there so they can go and, and either buy the book there or, uh, as you said, probably probably for North America, it's, it's going to be better if they buy it through Amazon because the, the postage is just so expensive to ship from Australia. 
Benji, that was that was great. Great to sit down and talk with you. What a wonderful story. And um, wow, I look forward to more adventures. I'm sure this is not the end for you. As a matter of fact, to me, it sounds like it's just the tip of the iceberg. Yes, thanks. Yeah, look, I've got a few things planned and we're sort of going through the process now. And it is like everything moving forward from here now that COVID's starting to ease in Australia and um, everything's opening up again. There's so many more adventures to be had and, and so many things in the pipeline at the moment. So yeah, it's great. Thanks very much, Benji. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate the time. I was speaking with Benji Brunden from Melbourne, Australia. His website is daringtoventure.com.au and that two in the middle is the number two, daringtoventure.com.au. Of course, we've got the link to Benji's website in the show notes um, where you can find his book and a bunch of information about what he does and what he's done. And and of course, we have um, some photographs as well in the show notes. So drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com and look at the show notes for this episode. Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio and uh, we'd like to thank you very much for being a part of it and listening to the show as well special thanks to Elizabeth Martin our producer now if you enjoyed this episode we would really appreciate it if you could do a couple of things here one is give us a five star rating on iTunes that will help others find the show something we should have been start asking right from the start and we, we didn't and then go to our website adventureriderradio.com and click on the support button we would love you to consider supporting the show it's built on a model of advertising and listener support and we need you we need you to step up a lot of people listen to this show many 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 people very few actually support the show we'd love it if you'd actually join in and, and also we have um, so anything $10 or more gets you a sticker sent at you anything $50 or more gets you a shout out on Raw that's quite fun but also if you become a patron supporter we've just started a new thing called Insights where we're, we're doing um, sort of like a mini podcast uh, that gives you a bit of a background into Elizabeth and I and lets you know, well, you know what our life is about and I think you might find that interesting. All available, adventureriderradio.com and click on support. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening and I will talk to you next week. Hi, this is Charlie Borman and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 